Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Harriet Johnston, Ytree's Head of Brand and Marketing, and I'm hosting a series of Futureverse episodes in which we dig into topics that are closely related to Ytree's central purpose. That is, to build a world where wealth is defined by how we live, not what we have. And to get there, we're going to transform personal finance by giving transparency, efficiency, and meaning back to money. Today, we're returning to our current theme in the Futureverse, risk. So far, we've looked at financial risk in all its forms with Ytree's Johnny Hampel and HG Capital senior partner, Nick Humphreys. So do please go and look out that episode if you haven't already heard it. Next, we'll be speaking to a war correspondent and an adventurer about risking their life for their work. But today, we'll hear from an entrepreneur about the risks inherent in building a business from scratch, many times over. Joining me is Michael Welch, OBE. Michael is the founder of the online tyre retailer BlackCircles.com and TyreScanner.com. After leaving school at 15, he worked as a tyre fitter before setting up his own business from his childhood bedroom, supported by a £500 grant and night shift work at a local Tesco. After a stint working as QuickFit's head of e-commerce, he launched his second business, BlackCircles.com, in 2001, the world's first click-to-fit tyre retailer. Black Circles was acquired by Michelin in 2015 for £50 million. Now he's taking on the US. He launched TyreScanner.com in 2019 before partnering with an American tyre distributor and becoming president and CEO of TyreBuyer.com in 2021. Michael was awarded an OBE in 2016 for services to business and charity and was awarded a Doctor of Enterprise by Edinburgh's Napier University. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Hi, Harry. Thanks for having me. Mike, it's quite the CV, but before we get into it, can you tell us a bit about your early life? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess for me, I didn't really have a lot of options coming out of school I was I kind of latterly kind of found out I was dyslexic and this more, more so dyscalculus so I kind of really struggled in school and you know, kind of when I finished my GCSEs and was looking for the next step a lot of my peers went to college and kind of then on to university and that kind of avenue wasn't open to me so so I took the first job I could get which was as a tire fitter in a local garage and and I guess it's, from there I kind of I learned to to love tires and kind of learn about the industry and I think getting in, into work and kind of experiencing industry was probably the thing that I kind of enjoyed the most about kind of my my early years school like I say was something that I kind of it wasn't really it wasn't for me so the majority of what I've kind of done to date really catalyst was getting into work and getting an opportunity you know on on the floor selling tires. Can I ask you about your very early life and how you got started in life? Because I do think it's important um, and our audience might be interested to understand that you didn't necessarily have what people might think of as a traditional early childhood. Sure. Yeah, no, I was lucky enough, and I say this now and I didn't feel it for many years, but I was lucky enough to be fostered and then adopted into a very loving family. My mum and dad took me on when I was a year and a bit old. So not anything I can really remember as an experience, but certainly something that has been a driver for me. Probably in my up until my early 20s, I was really driven by the need to want to prove myself of being worthy. So I kind of, I had a bit of chip on my shoulder about being given up. And it gave me, it certainly gave me a really early appreciation of family 
and and support and really what the and you know that today personally having three kids it's it's something that I hold very dear being a parent I take very seriously and and invest a lot of time in but yeah I, I was one of the lucky ones as was my brother who's not my blood brother but he was a, adopted by my mum and dad a few years later as well so it, it was an interesting time going through school kind of feeling like you know I had a you know I was different um and also then re- realizing I couldn't really eat or, or add up so so it, it kind of survival kind of instincts were kind of on on full alert to say the least yeah well right so you went on to set up your first business when you were 17 uh, what was it and how did that come about yeah so I was made redundant as a tire fitter I then had to go and find a job so like you do I went to the job center and there wasn't really anything for me which is kind of, it's the point of last resort. And there was a poster in the job centre for the Prince's Trust and they were promoting their grand scheme to help people, young people get into business or into a career. I literally came up with a business plan on the walk from the bus to the interview. And I mean, all I knew was tyres. So I'm like, well, and I knew I could kind of, I knew there was a gap in the market. I identified early that there was definitely a gap for high performance tires to kind of to enthusiast motorists. So that that became the premise of my business plan. And the Princess Trust were amazing. I mean, they kind of, they were used to kind of half-baked ideas like mine and they helped to mentor the genesis of that idea, really to kind of see if there was legs to that. And we sat and we, they helped me write a business plan and they were very kind. I mean, the, the interview was for a grant and for support. And rather than just telling me no, they kind of, took me to one side and gave me some like some advice and matched me up with somebody who could help me write this plan. Came back a couple of weeks later with my plan and it all kind of went from there really. They gave me a 500 pound grant, I bought a computer, they gave me an office space in Egbeth above an Ethel Austin's shop, if you remember those, maybe not, maybe it might have been a Northern England thing, with the Chamber of Commerce, a guy called Hugh, who was my mentor or my carer, it was more, more a carer than a mentor at that point, really. Make sure I didn't waste the 500 pounds. And he helped me develop the plan and kind of asked for a line of credit from the suppliers who were supplying the garage that I was working at. And they were kind enough to, I don't know how, why, but they gave me two weeks a line of credit. So I was buying and selling tires and built a website with the computer that I bought. So I wasn't really thinking about building an e-commerce business it was just a really efficient way for me to get my prices to an audience in a cost-effective way in terms of marketing so that was really quite successful relatively speaking and and then QuickFit were looking to develop an online and specialist proposition I was approached by some of their guys from the Midlands and, and then like literally next thing I know I'm in Edinburgh and I meet Sir Tom Farmer and Graham Bissett, who was the group finance director, and Tony Lockery, who's the CEO. In a matter of months, I've moved to Edinburgh and I'm working with those guys and we're building quickfit.com. How old were you then? 19. Yeah, 19. Didn't really know what I was talking about. I mean, they're saying in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I mean, I was kind of, I knew a bit, but I would by no means was I the expert. And then there was a kind of, a real twist of luck because QuickFit were acquired by 
Ford quite soon after. And because e-commerce obviously was kind of the th- quite the thing in the early 2000s, I, or late 90s, early 2000s, I was asked to go with a group of quick fit people to Ford and basically start to integrate ourselves. I mean, literally months earlier, I was fi- I was fitting tires. The kind of year earlier, I was fitting. T- I mean, it was just a wild ride to that point. I mean, imposter syndrome doesn't even come into it. I mean, I was an imposter, full stop. <laughs> so, but I learned a lot. And I guess one of the one of the early lessons for me was that don't don't be afraid to ask what might seem to be the daft question because what I found because I, I I didn't know not to. So I would ask a lot. A bit like a kid, right? So, but why? But how? And what I was finding was that in these kind of corporate environments, there's a lot of people who nod a lot, but actually want to ask a question, but they don't want to be seen to be. So I was a bit of, I was kind of plowing a furrow for the, and so when I was in these groups, people are like, oh, great, he's in. So he'll get the answers. So, so I, f- I found you know, the proverbial sponge, really. I was just kind of learning and soaking it up and being as as open as I possibly could. Again, it, the the lessons within there for me were, if you need help, you've got to ask. It doesn't matter how smart or how kind of developed you think you are in your career or your business. You don't know it all. It's impossible to know it all. And actually to ask for help and support or mentoring from from anybody, you'd be surprised. And I've built a career and several businesses now, I wouldn't say off the back of asking and getting help off of people, but certainly I've got a lot further than I would have had I not reached out and asked people for their support. Um, I think that's critical. And actually then being willing to go and deploy that support and being open and not being, um, you know, being humble, I think is really important. But you left QuickFit after two years with one month's salary to start Black Circles. Now, that feels risky to me. So what motivated that decision? And did it feel risky to you at the time? It's maybe an, ex- an extreme, but we come from nothing or not a lot. You're able to see progress. And for me, progress equals happiness, right? So if we're in, any, in everything, and that's not necessarily financial or business, it's just life. I had identified on the back of my first business, which was a mail order tire business. And then my quick fit experience that actually, if I was able to assemble a network of garages to, to, to offer a, an install service to the tires that were selling before nationwide, I wouldn't have the cost and it would give me a competitive advantage against the likes of quick fit. And Tom Farmer always used to say, the independence of the bane of our lives. How do these guys survive? How do they? And it always came down to service, always. And I was like, well, I wonder if I could persuade these independent guys because they're inherently great with their customers. It, that's something that they can't. You just can't fake it. So if I could get them to kind of join a network and I could pay them well to install my customers' tires, I wouldn't really need to train them. I wouldn't really need because. It just comes, if you get the right guys, it comes naturally. So I just couldn't get, that was an itch that I just could not scratch. I was just like, and then Tom and some of the senior guys, Graham Business, they they left the business um, around that, just after the sale and around, and it just wasn't the same. And, and I, you know, I just felt like, I just felt compelled. I needed to do it. I needed to go and try it, do something. Is it fair to say that you're happiest when you're being 
scrappy and innovative and maybe not so much when it sort of goes into a different corporate mindset. I like a challenge. It's funny you say that. I would say latterly, I definitely put myself in a position where there's a there's a more corp in a more corporate environment, there's a different way to land the message, deliver the strategy, motivate people. But I think a lot of the fundamentals are the same communication, being clear, concise, using information, not you know, operating at will. And I think a lot of the fundamentals apply, but it's on a different stage. And I wasn't ready back then to kind of be kind of consumed into a corporate environment. But I felt it, that probably wasn't the main motivation. The main motivation was I felt it was such a compelling opportunity. Yeah, so I engaged local enterprise council, Scottish enterprise, and about some support. And they said, we've got a little office that you can have for free for a while in Peebles. I'm like, where's Peebles? <laughs> so so I traveled down to Peebles and they gave me some 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 basic, a little bit of financial support. I think it was 1,500 pounds and they gave me the office for, for three months. But then I had to start a business and get it moving and get cash flow. And so that's what I set about doing. And so how did you said you, you're good at asking for help, which again shows a risk taker because you're obviously you've got to be ready for people to say no. So was there anyone in that in those early days um, who was important in lending you a hand? Yeah, definitely. So when I got Black Circles moving kind of two thousand a couple of years in, I'm kind of just reading as much as I can. That was kind of to get motivated, keep reading, keep. And that, what I, re I kind of realized as well was, and it's part of kind of a dyslexic, bit of a dyslexic brain, but the, you are, we are more likely to take risks because that's the way we work. It's about, it's about getting to the end point. It's in a different way and much quicker. We haven't really got, it's the kind of the way the wiring works. And, but what I realized is I didn't really have the the knowledge about how to retail, how to be, I mean, I could sell tires, but how do we retail? How do we merchandise? How do we procure? How do we engage customers? One of the readings that I was doing was I was subscribed to Fortune magazine and this guy, Terry Lee, he was made, was, it was a cartoon picture of him on the front page and he, it was like his seventh year running. He was a uh, Fortune business person of the year. So I read the article and in the article, I've circled it. He sent me, I've got it somewhere, circled a bit. He's from Liverpool. And I said, well, there you go. We must be related. <laughs> so I sent him a letter and I said, look, Terry, I'm, you don't know me, but I'm, he sent me the letter back recently. I mean, he, he, like, he's like, I was going through my archives. I found the letter. Honestly, it was brilliant. And, but I said, look, could you spare me an hour, half an hour for a cup of tea just to talk about how to retail because this is what I'm trying to do and this is what I'm doing. And I got a letter back, it was on the Thursday, I got a letter back on the Tuesday from him saying, come and join me at Chesson's head office. Now at that point, Tesco's, is, he's grown Tesco's from like 5 billion sales to 70. Like it's one of the biggest grocery retailers on the planet. And, it, and within a few, and now interestingly, when I went to see him, I said to him, why, like what? I didn't think my letter would get through. He said, well, everybody thinks that's probably why it did because the assumption is, why bother? Why reach out? Why send a letter? And I'm sure there's a filtering system. I mean, the guy had three three PAs. 
right? But it's not a big bag of mail. It's people don't, people really don't reach out to the CEO like that. So, so we had a two hour sit down. He gave me his number. He said, if you need anything, just call. And from there, he, he was just, a, he's an amazing guy and an amazing talent. And he taught me from the, he then, he subsequently invested and then he joined my board. And then, like I say, we're friends today. We've invested in things together. But he taught me the biggest lesson I got from him was, was around the numbers. And that was my kind of, I would kind of written that off a little bit. I'm like, I can sell stuff, but I can't count. But I understand intrinsically, I understand the numbers, but not in a PL cash flow balance sheet kind of traditional way. And what he taught me to do is use the numbers like a math. So the understand the intrinsic link between what you see on the page and what's actually happening in the business. So observe the patterns, understand what drives that number to be up, that number to be down. And once I got to that, I used to say, he used to, always used to say to me, get underneath the numbers. And I'm like, well, I am. It's like, no, you're just reading the numbers. You need to get under the numbers. And then, and then it clicked. And that for me was the turning point. So just at the point where you'd watch the numbers really going up, like Black Circles was extremely profitable in 2015, you sell it. So did that feel like another big risk? It was a personal risk because I didn't really want to do it, which is, it's got to be careful with how I frame this because nobody's going to feel sorry for me, right? I mean, it's a very fortunate position to be in. We're very lucky. We, as a group, I think we all did very well. And Michelin got a great deal and they got a great business, but I wasn't ready. What I realized was the, the journey from, start, from an idea to that point, it's only really... Usually when, the best time to sell a business is when you least want to. So when, I, when you see people trying to sell businesses, it's highly likely that the outcome's not really going to be what they want or the, what they aspire to. Usually the best deals are when you get taken out, when you're at, your app, you're at your, the peak of your ascendancy or that kind of real inflection point on what the next phase is going to look like. And we were there. I mean, we were making money. We were strategically we're looking at the US and internationalizing and but it was the right deal every one of my shareholders and my advisors we got to the point on it was a Saturday and Michelin we came round again and it was like right this is the last final are we going to do this this is the offer these are the terms it was a Saturday and they gave it was a deadline sun midday on the Sunday and they'd all turn their phones off so I'm phoning round I'm actually sitting in the west end so I'm having a bacon roll and I'm trying to phone. I've got like two hours to go and I'm trying to phone guys to get Terry and Graham and Kevin and not nobody's returning my... And, and it was... That was the, probably one of the loneliest moments of the whole experience. But thrilling as well. It was... And, it, and, and selling the business at that point to Michelin was the right thing to do because... I'm a great believer in the story that you tell with the things that you do. And it's not as grand as a legacy as such, but it's for us to do what we did and sell to the world's largest tire manufacturer, most respective tire manufacturer was great. And the financial situation for the group was, a, was great, but also, the, like I say, the story and the longevity and it's doing a great job today. Um, was, I'm really proud of that, but I wasn't ready. Even though you, you tried your best to stay away from the industry after, after the sale of Black Circles, you're very much back in it and you're now in the US market. 
What brought you back? Uh, yeah, so the hangover from that, really, I was like, the US is such a, I mean, it's like, it's many times the size, like 30 times the size of the UK. And it's innovative, but it's not as innovative of what we've seen in Europe. So I kind of always knew that we needed and wanted, I needed interest and needed, I wanted, needed to do something here. That was, that's risk. And being able to say, you gotta try, you gotta try and you gotta fail and you gotta fall and you gotta learn to be able to then win. And to not, I, yeah, I kind of felt like it was, I needed to take that plunge. We needed to take that risk. So at that point we had one child, Sophia, she was really young. I think she's like one, yeah, one or two. And I persuaded my wife that this was a shoe in right? The US was going to be straightforward. It was a template job, blueprint. I mean, these are the sorts of words. So let's try it. And she's like, well, yeah, great. If that's what you, if it's that easy, why not? <laughs> so then we, so when we came to Miami and we set up and then literally had like a notebook and some plane tickets and I started just to travel around. And, it, and I tell you, I was sat in Atlanta airport kind of a couple of months in and I'm like this just looking at the departures and arrivals screen I'm like I've completely underestimated this like this country is ginormous I mean I knew it was big but it was like and my wife's phoning me so how are you getting on I'm like brilliant it's going really well <laughs> like it was one of the but once you're in and we, when you understand the market understand the customers, build the model. So we plowed on and invested the, uh, my own finances in building Tire Scanner, which was kind of a version of Black Circles. It was actually starting to show some green shoots. I mean, the money's coming out of the account like like water off a dike. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and again, it's, we have, I'm having these check-ins with Victoria and I'm like, it's really, ha it's happening, it's coming. We're starting to turn, and we were starting to turn the corner. And then we had a, ch and then we had a chance meeting with, with ATD, who are the biggest tire distributor in America in the world, actually. And they had this tirebuyer.com property uh, business. And quite quickly, they were like, "We see what you're doing. We love what you're doing. We've got this. How about if we?" And it, that was out of the blue. That's luck. And but again, what I found in terms of the luck that we've had, you've got to be in a position for that look to find you. So look follows risk in, in, in almost all cases. You've got to be doing something different to find, it doesn't, it, in my experience, it very rarely does it find you in the same position that you've always been in. You need to put yourself out there. No, it seems to me that, yeah, one risk after another has, has paid off for you. But again, you've got to, you've got to put the risk out there to, to find the luck. Have there been any risks that haven't paid off? Yeah, I mean, we've made some investments. We've had some businesses that haven't worked out, and that's really sad. I invest a lot of my own emotion into what I do. I think actually probably having kids has helped me kind of place kind of that kind of emo emotive drive into family than into business. But I am very much what you see is what you get. I put myself out there, and that's great when things are going really well. But when things don't go so well, it, it, there are consequences to that. It's painful, it's hard. But I guess, again, the lessons within that are if you have integrity and you try your best, 
and it's a cliche, but you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. And I think that because you're forced to really dig into your soul and dig into your dig into dig into the path that's got you to kind of where you've got to. And look, there's lots of stuff that I wish I hadn't done, but also lots of stuff that I'm glad we did do. And even if, they, if things didn't work out the way we might have wanted, but you've got to try. And like I say, it, it you've got to you've got to try new things and you've got to take risks to find luck so you've you've been very open about saying that you yeah you, you're quite you put a lot of yourself into your business your predisposition is to go all out so how do you balance that now find a sense of calm or avoid that tipping into a place where it's disruptive to your family or disruptive to you personally. Yeah, it's quite diff- it's quite difficult. I think when we got to three kids, they kind of they start to try the sheer number and energy and noise certainly focuses the mind. It's a force of nature, probably more than it is o- upon me as opposed to something from me. But I think it's ex- experience tells you that helps you balance what's important and what's not. That being said, the basis of everything I do comes from a point, a position of of being genuine and being authentic. And that's going to be a kind of, some people are going to like that and some people aren't going to like that. And and there's going to be consequences with that. So it's making sure, for me, so it's making sure that I can regulate, you know, whatever my, the output is that comes from whatever situation, good or bad. And that's just training. It's training and, and, and a bit of maturity as you get as you get older. Maybe you learn to take that second before the before reacting. Maybe I don't know. I, I haven't learned that yet. I'm nearly forty five. <laughs> no, I think that's right. For me, the probably my background and the biggest reward for me, and again, this is not for this is not for a quote or for to sound like I'm trying to say the right thing. I for me, the biggest dividend out of anything that I've ever achieved is my children. And that is because I've been fortunately able to appreciate what, how important it is to, have, to be in a loving family from a very young age. And I think most of us, and my kids actually, they won't know any different. And if we're doing a good enough job, they won't know any different. So it's sometimes it's hard to really appreciate what you've got until you haven't got it. And so so my kind of, certainly my balance has become easier with the family, as you say, the kind of some maturity that comes with that and the experience. And and that allows me to, from some of the failures as well, and it certainly allows me to kind of, to invest the emotional piece in the right areas without losing that authenticity and the drive in the business sense, because the day I stop enjoying what I do, I'll just stop doing it. I mean, I, I, that's that's the reality. I mean, I'm I'm doing it because I can. When we think about risk, I guess we also have to acknowledge that there are many, many young people who, like you, might be leaving school at 15 with no qualifications, and yeah. they might be considered at risk. You know, that's a risky position to be in. Um, are you are you motivated now by thinking about those young people? Are you, Absolutely. Are you do you no, still feel very connected Welsh to the fifteen year olds you were Black when circles you left school? And we purpose is to support a critical illness. My wife's a pediatric nurse, a critical illness and adoption fostering and education and support for 
kids who need a leg up, frankly. So kind of from kind of more deprived type environments. And we, we that in, we probably didn't have much time in 2016 after Black Circles, but more latterly, it's become much more of a passionate play for me because, again, I'm the, what you do shouldn't really define you, but certainly it, it gives a bit of a narrative to when you look. I want my kids to be proud of me about what I did, but not from an ego perspective because you want to do good if you can, if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where you can. And we've, we're now doubling, really doubling down on that. So we support the grant-giving program that the Prince's Trust gave to me. So we support that financially and across the country. We're working with Prince's Trust on their, some of their centres, so setting up some of their centres across the country, not least Liverpool. And I'm, I'm, I've just joined the board, actually, of the Prince's Trust North America to help set up the same programmes here. And I'm trying to do some stuff in adoption and fostering here in, in the light of the roadway, road versus way, if you know about all of that. But in the US, it's quite making quite big waves, but there'll be implications on fostering and adoption. So trying to get in early and see if we can do some work on that too. Because this stuff really is, this, I mean, the business stuff is great, but it facilitates stuff like this that really matters. So it's really important that, you know, when all is said and done, I think, and this is a personal perspective, you've done the most you could do in as focused a way as possible. So say you can't, say you did, to be proud of what you did. And it's not for anybody else to put accolades and plaudits against it. It's, it's this sense of achievement. And as I say, the dividend that comes out of this stuff is way bigger than anything that comes out of selling a company. I can tell you, because I've been in both situations, it's a, you know, to be able to be able to be in a position where you can make a difference and actually see that happen is just a, it's a blessing, it's a gift. Much of our work at Ytree is about helping our clients understand their own personal sort of financial risk level. Do you approach investing with the same appetite for risk that you do your business endeavours? So say your, your personal investments, your personal financial life. Yeah, yeah, I would say probably moderate risk. Trying to, I mean, there's a lot, we take a lot of risks. So there's a, the, back to the kind of the point about the family, just making sure that we don't take unnecessary risks when it comes to their kind of future, making sure that we can secure that in the best way we can. But I think the biggest risk is not taking any risks. You know, you've got to take some sort of risk to move forward. And if you don't, then circumstance will sort that out for you. So you need to be in control to the extent that it's like skiing, right? You lean into your skis, you can control the hill, lean back and you're on your backside. And I think that the same applies in, in investment, investing and in, in, in business, we're probably more a green or a green and a blue in personal investment, and it's a black diamond in business. It sounds right. You've got to lean into what you understand, right? Take the risk where you, you're the expert. I want to say thank you so much, Mike, for being with us today. It's a real privilege to get to hear such a, an amazing story of risks well taken and also the learnings that come from the, the harder part of risk taking, you know? 
If any of the issues we've discussed in today's episode piqued your interest, please visit y-tree.com to find out more about Ytree and the work we're doing to provide an alternative perspective on money and life. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and feel free to explore our back catalogue of content if you want to learn more about money and life. Michael Welch, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. <laughs>